Well, good morning and welcome here in the room and uh, wherever you are maybe joining us online. Take your Bibles again and turn with us to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 9 and starting today at verse 10. Ecclesiastes 9.10 is our starting point. To kind of get ourselves back into the context of our study, last week if you were with us in the opening verses of chapter 9, you know that we were realizing the reality of death, the brevity of life. And the flip side of that, the good news is that if you are alive, God has a reason for you to be alive. Chapter 9, verse 4, anyone who's among the living has hope. And uh, God has a reason for you to be alive. And so one of those reasons we saw in verses 7, 8, and 9 was that God intends for you to enjoy life. So enjoy life, verse 7. Enjoy your meals. Enjoy your uh, celebrations, be clothed in white. In verse 9, enjoy your wife, enjoy your marriage. So you, if we stop there, you could maybe think, well, that, that's God's plan, is that, that we need to um, throw, and get all the, throw everything aside, retire early, have as much fun as possible, and go for all the gusto. But clearly, Solomon is more serious than that, and God's word is. And so we go from this very important issue of enjoying life to what we see now in the key verse of our passage, and that's verse 10 where we begin. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Don't you like it when the Bible states the obvious? (laughs) Work now because you die and then you can't work. Whatever your hand finds to do. So in addition to enjoying life, it's saying there is something we need to accomplish in life. There is no contradiction between enjoying life and accomplishing in life. The answer is that both are God's plan. Whatever your hand finds to do, the, the uh, metaphor there is of a hand reaching out to take hold of something. Imagine some kind of manual labor, the, the shovel or the hammer. So Whatever your hand finds to do, whatever you're supposed to do on the keyboard or whatever it is, do it with all of your strength or might because you just have this life to accomplish what God wants you to do. Now, the world would probably say something similar. You're right, we need to enjoy life and we need to accomplish something. But here's the difference. In the world, they are thinking of how can I selfishly accomplish what makes me successful and makes me feel good? How, in the, as a worldly person, as a selfish person, can I have the most fun, the most pleasure? And it's all self-directed. But the difference, of course, in the context of God's word is how can we enjoy life and accomplish what God wants, because we have a vertical view of life. And so that is what he's saying. So our responsibility is to figure out what our purpose is in life from God. When we get to heaven, we'll know exactly what to do somehow. That'll all be taken care of. But here on earth, we need to figure out what it is God is calling us to do. Default will be to do what we want to do, just like the world of unbelievers does, 
But as followers of Christ, we want to figure out what God wants us to do. So really, uh, both in our passage today and really following into our study next week, we are seeing basically Solomon's theology of work, the purpose of work, and so forth. So I want us to be thinking about uh, personally application. You know, what are your, what is your work? Whether it's paid or unpaid, or you're fully employed, partly employed, or retired, or whatever your abilities or limitations are, what is it that God has you doing all day? And how does that fit into his plan for you? What are your unique abilities, your opportunities, the people you know? So to be thinking that way, and it's, this, is, this is completely uh, irrelevant of age. It, it applies to all. Nine-year-olds, if you're following me, it's for you. What should you do? 19-year-olds, 49, 79, or in your 90s, what does God have you to do? I think it's especially relevant as we even, uh, as Solomon is writing towards the end of his life, and we'll see in the coming last couple of chapters, there's quite a bit of reference to age and aging. So do we retire to quit working? Our, our culture sometimes is kind of obsessed with planning to quit work. Instead of planning for a time when we no longer maybe have an employer and, and no longer have uh, uh, the ability to earn, that, that all is, is legitimate, but then when I'm done with the regular career work, earning work, then what is the work God has me to do? But whatever it is, whatever stage or season you are in, do it with all your might or Strength. This term uh, in the Hebrew language can mean both physical and mental strength. And the last line refers to how in, after you die, you don't work, plan, knowledge, or have wisdom. So what should we be doing now? We should be very intentional about working, planning, knowledge, with knowledge, and with wisdom. So it really, it really elevates the importance of everything that we do all day that we would be very intentional to do it. I think the implication is to do it well, to do it with excellence. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says this, what, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, it's the same universal statement, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Everything that we do deserves to be done with excellence because it reflects the glory of God. We know the glory of God is reflected in what he created, and as you look around the globe and the universe, you see that there is absolute excellence in everything God did. It's so incredible how the body is made or how the sunset that we enjoy from, from this position here or anything else you see in this county or where you go to travel, it is all done with such excellence, and so we're to be like that with excellence or specifically the workplace Paul was speaking of in Colossians when he says whatever you do again work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord not for human masters as you read the first line of that you you see the similarity of Paul writing to the Colossians with what uh, Solomon is writing here it's like he was having his uh, devotions that morning Paul in, in Ecclesiastes because we see whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. So whether or not someone sees what you do, Paul told the Colossians, make sure that you do it for the one who sees. If the boss isn't in the room, remember the boss is always in the room. 
Work with excellence. Last weekend, I was uh, assembling a, a, a shelving unit, some kind of cubby type things for Priscilla in the sewing room. And, uh, you know, it comes in a box and you have to put the thing together. And so I'm putting it together and it, 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 it fastens and, and, and strengthens itself really well with some very unique large screws, the kind of screws that are obviously manufactured for this application, not something you can go pick up in the hardware store. And it all was going together really well, except that someone in the factory responsible for putting the screws into the little Ziploc bag was one short. A tiny detail, right? But now I either leave it like that, which I might, or I have to call the company and they'll send me one, but there is something about doing our job, whatever it is in manufacturing or, or spreadsheets or, or housework or whatever it might be to do it to the glory of God. So chapter 9 is emphasizing life is brief, so work hard, work faithfully, work well. Uh, because you can't later on when you die. Does, does working well guarantee uh, success and promotions and uh, applause? S Solomon, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, as you know by now, is very much a realist. So while saying we should work at it with all of our mind and, or with all of our uh, strength, uh, He's a realist that says sometimes that doesn't even guarantee a great outcome. Verse 11, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. It's a little bit of uh, harsh realism to go, but sometimes it doesn't mean that everybody's going to Say you're such a success. Five good qualities, swift, strong, wise, intelligent, knowledgeable. Some biblical examples. In David's time, his nephew Asahel, a, a, a soldier that was noted for being swift, fast runner. He ran so fast he caught up with Abner, who was stronger than he, and Abner killed him. Or there's Samson the man given the greatest strength of any human being probably ever on earth. And yet, because he loved an unbelieving woman, Delilah, who betrayed him, his strength didn't save him either. You can say, well, that's, that, that was their own fault. Or what about Job? Job is this godly man. He had to be an exceptional businessman and rancher. When you read of all the flocks and herds that he has, and yet, because there was something he did not understand that was going on, that God was doing, he lost all of that before God gave it all back to him. But it just shows us the principle of Solomon that uh, time and chance happened to them all. And that's not a way of saying that God didn't oversee that, but rather that from the human perspective, we don't see what's all happening and why. Time and chance happened to all. Not only that, sometimes... Our lives are cut short, verse 12. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. It's true. As fish are caught in a cruel net and birds are caught, taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Let's be honest, Solomon says. Sometimes life is cut short like a bird that suddenly is caught in a trap 
because times are evil. It's a fallen, sinful world. So there is an urgency to press into what God has given you to accomplish. It's a, it's a do-it-now kind of a statement. Jesus, in John 9, was um, approaching this man. If you've read the story, with, he's walking with his disciples, and he sees this man who was born blind. And the disciples asked him, who was, who was responsible for this? Who sinned? And Jesus said, this blind, no one sinned, but this blindness happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So Jesus uh, knew his time was brief. He had basically three and a half years of public ministry. And so he said, oh, actually, everything has a purpose. And the purpose is that, that the, the, to do the works that God has sent me to do. It's a principle that's true for us. What has God the Father given us to do. Jesus understood that, and, and while we know that Jesus' primary work would be the work of the cross and the resurrection, yet he, he dialed it back and said, well, this, this man is part of that work, and so he also sent me to heal this blind man to display the glory of God. And, and frankly, if we were just to think through all of Jesus' human life, we would think of him working as a boy in, his, in, in Joseph's carpenter shop, no doubt helping and, and shaping wood or counting screws, <laughs> dowels perhaps, for the, for the customer. So whatever you do, do it so that it glorifies God. We glorify God by excellence and by attitude. Because everyone knows that the inherent nature of work is that there's something hard about it. That's why it's called work. And so even an attitude is that which glorifies God. So whatever your hand finds to do, this, everything it seems like now for a chapter or two is flowing from this doing everything with all of our might because we don't live forever. Work faithfully, work with excellence. And now as we continue on, we see that we should also work for impact. So it is inherently important that we do things well, but do we have to also realize that as we work, with whatever God's given us to do, we are impacting others. Interesting story, he tells. I really think this is a true story of something that Solomon observed. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Doesn't look good. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered the poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. The, 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 the unknown wise man compared to the big strong king. Wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are no longer heeded. So we don't know what it is that this wise man said that worked, but it it worked. It thwarted the king, and the, and the city was saved. It, no one remembered him. In fact, that, that term remembered can also imply remembered and rewarded. I mean, he deserved to be acknowledged. He deserved to somehow receive some kind of a reward. He saved the whole city. 
but no one remembered him. I'm pretty sure that somewhere in your work life you can remember contributions that you've made that have been significant for your company or organization. And uh, maybe you saved them money by a solution or automated something or it was your smiling face that uh, helped customers to want to come back again and again, whatever it is. It's all part of your God-given purpose. But then there's an opportunity for a promotion or a raise and guess what? Passed right over you and the golfing buddy got the job instead. I think that's when working for the glory of God really becomes important. Because as followers of Christ, I think we have to be prepared for the times when it will be okay with us if we only glorify God, if I can put it in that terms. In other words, it's okay if, if, if we aren't recognized, if we aren't noticed, if we aren't applauded here, because we have been pleasing God his smile, his approval, his applause has been going on the whole time. But it's important that we narrow that focus so that we realize we are benefiting our company, our organization, even though we don't get credit for it. In the season, many more people have worked at home where no one watches them work. Uh, moms work at home doing so many things that nobody notices. And yet we are called to impact whether noticed at all. So he says in verse 16, so I said, this is my conclusion, Solomon. I, wisdom is greater than strength. Not because it's earning applause, but because it's getting something done. The city was saved and you couldn't take that away. Even though the poor man's wisdom was despised, the suggestion is that not only was he not credited, but he is actually criticized. Now, that's really when it gets frustrating, when we, we have done something well, and not only are we not credited, but we're actually criticized. No good deed goes unpunished. And yet, something got done that God wanted done, that is good for society, good for, for the company, good for other people employed there, good for the customer. Aren't you glad for unknown people, maybe who, uh, people unknown to you at least, who maybe started your company? where you are now employed and receive a livelihood. Aren't you glad for people who we didn't know personally that started our country? People that maybe you don't know that started Open Door Bible Church 44 years ago. People who um, are your ancestors, great grandparents maybe, who by their work ethic and their decisions, something that has filtered down to make you who you are, People who maybe came to faith in Christ like my ancestors did generations ago that I still benefit from. Wisdom is greater than strength because of its impact on nations, churches, generations. So live wisely and quietly and work faithfully and don't worry about the credit because, verse 17, the quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. There's more impact from a quiet, wise person than the shouting of a ruler of fools. That's the person who says, hey, look at me. Somehow what came to mind was social media influencers. 
there's a lot more accomplished by you living a quiet life of wisdom, influencing your circle, as small or big as God makes it, than someone who has the millions of followers supposedly influencing, whether it's for good or for ill. You impact your children every day, if they're living with you especially. You impact your grandchildren. You may have opportunity to impact someone else's children, someone else's grandchildren, like the people who work with my grandchildren in kids' life on Wednesday nights. Who are you called to influence? At the end of the service today, as Seth mentioned, there'll be a a presentation about a, a project. It's for the next generation. And how does God want us to be involved? Because we want to be teaching our kids. The same burden I know that Ozaki Christian School has and the church has, and no one's more influential, actually, than our, us as parents. Wisdom is greater than strength. We're now in verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. More influence. But then, now there's a, there's a warning again. But one sinner destroys much good. We knew that, didn't we? You can, you can pour into someone, influence, influence, and then sometimes it's one close bad friend that is part of what takes someone astray, or one uh, convincing false teacher, or one evil, immoral idea that is pounded into us from some of Satan's lies craftily woven into beautiful TV stories. And so we begin to accept a lie about morality or something. They're held accountable. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. Little ones are the children that were around him in the crowd that day. The negative influencers are accountable. I know celebrities are easy targets on that. Uh, But the Kardashians probably aren't going to watch my online sermons, so probably this is for us. Feel free to invite them. Send them a link. But uh, what about our priorities? What about our foolishness? Are we getting wisdom from the right place. It's especially true for, for parents, but anybody that you are influencing, where is your wisdom coming from? The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. You don't need to be educated. You don't need to be popular. You don't need to be known. All it takes is that if you have a conviction that the word of God is indeed the word of God, you will have an impact on people around you. Timothy referred to his mother and grandmother when he wrote, from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, or rather when Paul wrote to Timothy, from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you, to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. Earlier in the books of Timothy, we know that his mother Eunice and grandmother Lois were the believers in his family. And they taught him the Scriptures so that he 
would have the wisdom to put his faith in Jesus Christ when he heard the gospel. Are you able to lead your child to Christ? Can you understand and explain the gospel clearly enough that you can help them come to assurance of faith in Christ? I can't think of anything more important. So is the word of God your source of wisdom? If it is, it's worth making it a daily staple of your mental diet. Because what you are learning from the word of God will become evident to those around you especially the little ones around you they, that come to know you, trust you inherently, and at least they will know what God's wisdom does, whether they follow it or not, but they will know the value of God's wisdom. As we think about our purpose in life, Solomon has said, make sure you work faithfully with excellence because you don't know how much time you have. And make sure that you are living wisely so that you can impact, influence others well. As we come to chapter 10, he says the other reason we need to live wisely is because of the high stakes of failure. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Uh, I I like his simple down-to-earth illustrations. Little bugs fall into a perfumer's bat, and suddenly that which was intended to bless people with a great, wonderful odor is instead that, spoiled. So little foolish choices create serious, bad, big mistakes. So we have to ask, are we living in any kind of spiritually precarious state? where we are tolerating something that we consider small, but it's a dead fly in the perfumer's vat. It's a tiny sin. It's uh, one dishonest number. It's uh, one look at a website. It's one angry outburst. But a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor and, 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 and a track record of, of significant good choices can be undermined, eradicated by some tolerated dead flies. How many years of wise saving does it take to lose it all in a big, greedy venture that was risky? How many Years of good relationships can be destroyed by one bitter word or text. How many long marriages have been destroyed by a brief affair? Solomon is warning us. And he now says the solution is the heart. Do we have a heart of wisdom? Verse 2. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. This is not an attack on you lefties, okay? Left-handed people are okay. But there was an idiom, if you will, a metaphor in ancient Israel or ancient Near East in general that the right was the right way. It was the safe way. It was considered the place of 
protection. Psalm 121.5, the Lord is your shade at the right hand. It's the place where you're safe. It's the place where you're protected. So you need a heart that is inclined towards doing that which is, is, is going to be the good path, the safe path. The issue is the heart. How's your heart? The heart is a mindset. The heart is a, a settled direction which is the direction that you are facing. Someone who's considered a safe driver is a safe driver because they have a safe mindset. And so when that opportunity comes, they react well. But someone who has been driving emotionally for a long time is far more likely to make that dreadful mistake. So we're driven by emotions. Or is our heart faced in the right direction. Can you recall a time in life for yourself or maybe someone close to you where you saw the heart inclined in the wrong direction? You kind of knew that any day there could be something crash. Like playing Jenga. You keep pulling out those sticks. It works for a while till the tower comes down. So is your mind, your heart, settled on what is good? Paul said in Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is noble, right, pure, lovely, Admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things so what we think about matters. A description of fools, again in verse 3. In other words, these are the things that will destroy you from accomplishing the purpose God has in mind for your life. Purposes. Because there's many things and many seasons to what God has for us. Even as he walks along the road, verse 3, the fool lacks sense and shows everyone how stupid he is. If you're not allowed to say that in your house, I'm sorry, but I just read it out of the NIV here. As he walks along the road, the fool lacks sense, and everybody else sees it, except him. He's oblivious. And the reason is, because of verse 2, he's had this heart that's been inclined to foolishness, and so for, for a long time, he has been justifying his anger or greed or lust or whatever. It's now their nature. Everybody else knows it except him or her. That's why David, in Psalm 139, last verse says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. And see if there's a wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way because I know that my own heart can be fooled. The heart is deceitful. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So I can fool myself and I can be oblivious to myself and my faults. So do you have people you can trust to ask? Or even if you picture this, if someone who knew you best, you knew they were praying for you, what do you think they're praying about? How would they pray that you would grow? What weakness would they see? And then to have that transparency and that openness and that vulnerability before God to say, God, please work in me on that issue. Verses 4 to 7 shift our attention to foolish people in authority. Foolish people in authority. If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great errors to rest. Be calm when rulers or bosses are angry. What if the boss is angry? What if the politician's an angry person, the official? You've probably had an angry boss or 
someone overseeing you at some point. Don't leave your post. They said, don't quit. Don't storm out. Is the reason that you, though you are under their authority, you can be an influence in their life. So he says, stick with it and be calm. Back in chapter 8, verse 3, I think he's saying the same thing. He said, do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Uh, don't just abandon. Solomon had said about relationships, Proverbs 15:1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So calm people accomplish God's purposes best. People are not driven by their anger. Everybody gets angry, by the way. Anger is an emotion. But calm people don't react according to their emotions. They're able to respond differently because they've trained their heart. And the only one who trains the heart is God. And the only way God communicates to our heart is through his word. So you kind of see where this goes back. So are we known for harsh words or calm words? Personal conversations, home, family, social media, anywhere calmness more about rulers because uh, and this is kind of a hard pill to swallow but verses five six and seven tell us that you may not be able to fix the problem of bad bosses or bad government there is an evil i see under the sun the sort of error that rises from a ruler fools are put in many high positions while the rich occupy the low ones. And the word rich here is probably used in a positive connotation as someone who's wise enough that he has wealth and understands money and economy, okay, economies. So fools are in high positions while the wiser ones, you could say, occupy low ones. I have seen slaves on horseback. They didn't really belong there. And princes go on foot like slaves. In other words, the it's his way of saying that the, the people who were wiser should have had the position, but instead a fool is ruling over them. He says it happens. Sometimes fools have high positions. They are put or set there, it says. Now, in America, of course, many of our positions are elected. Many are appointed by people who are elected. Sometimes it happens. We all understand the politics, and we can expect to see that there would be foolish or evil or unbiblical decisions made. What's interesting is how Solomon describes it. He's this harsh realist again, but with godly priorities. And what does he say? He doesn't tell us how to fix it. He says what, where we should focus. We should be wise. We should be uh, be calm. There is, he said repeatedly to us, under the sun, we're going to have to experience injustice and foolishness. There are things that we don't control, but then throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he's also uh, occasionally, it kind of peppered in there, not dominant, but there are commands of, this is what you should do. And so what should we do? What we should do are things like work hard and live out your God-given purpose and enjoy life and, and be wise. Or in chapter 12, he'll wrap it all together and say, remember your creator in the days of your youth. So, so, so be looking in Ecclesiastes for the commands because that's what we control. That's, what, that's, where, that's where our responsibility lies, whatever happens around or above us. Verses 8 to 11 circle us back to where we started today. Remember, whatever your hand finds to do, 
as you live out your purpose in what you do all day. And, 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 and these, these four verses really, uh, I, I would, they, they make a great poster on a break room wall or a, maybe a business training manual someplace if someone would put up something biblical because they are thought-provoking biblical work principles. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. You could read this as if it's telling people, don't be careless. What I think it's actually saying is, all profitable work has risks. It's going to be risky. In other words, he's told us how to be safe, but then he said, you can be too safe, so to speak. Where you don't even try anything, you don't initiate anything. You can fall, you can be bitten by a snake, you can be injured. It could happen, but... But if you're going to get a ditch dug or a well dug, you're going to have to accept that someone might slip and fall. And you'll have to rescue and the bone has to heal. And if you've got a wall that needs to go down because you're going to build a new wall, someone could get hurt. But the wall needs to be fixed. There could be a snake in it. And if you're going to build a house, you're going to have to quarry some stones, you're going to have to split some logs. And because you're working with tools, you can get hurt. Table saws can sometimes hurt a finger. But you still got to keep working. Acceptable risk. He picks up on the last one in verse uh, 9. Or rather, in verse 10, he picks up on the last one in verse 9 about splitting logs and says, but there are some ways to be careful and uh, mitigate mitigate the, the dangers. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill or wisdom will bring success. The idea is, make sure you sharpen your axe. Because a sharper axe actually is a safer axe. You can cut more cleanly and safely and predictably, plus you get more work done. Work smarter, not just harder. Sharpen your axe. Wisdom brings success. The the idea of, of, of maintaining and thinking ahead of time Or going way back to where we started in chapter 9, verse 10. When you die, there's neither working or planning or knowledge or wisdom. That means working and planning and knowledge and wisdom is what we need today when we work. So that we we have this sense of maintenance. Actually, next next week in the the following verses, we'll see this issue of how important it is to maintain things. And finally, verse 11. Sometimes fools, instead of planning ahead, they... Think about danger too late. If a snake bites before it is charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. That's in the entertainment industry, if you're a snake charmer. Um, You've got to be very careful before you start playing your flute because you could get bit and, and now you're sick and you're off work and you can't make any money charming snakes. So uh, interesting, the, the portions of life he draws illustrations. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Because where you're going, there is no working or planning or knowledge or wisdom. Do you know that you are in the right place with what you are doing all day? Whatever stage, whatever season, are you maximizing 
the time you have. I want to just put a chart up here and don't try to copy it. There's copies at the back table if you want to grab it and there's a little bit more room for notes there if you want to, but to just think through your purpose. What is your hand finding to do? In these different categories, your day job, whatever that might be, your ministry or spiritual giftedness, the people that God has you to impact and margin or free time that you have available to you. Let's think about this first. First of all, just to note, who, who are you? Employed, retired, limited in ability. What do you mostly do? And then to ask this question, how, how can my main contributions glorify God? So it's probably not about changing everything you do. You're still employed at XYZ Company. But how can your main contributions be adjusted so that they clearly glorify God? And then to ask yourself questions like this passage has, are you, are you wise? Are you, are you faithful, dependable? Are you striving for excellence? But then to realize that as a part of the body of Christ, with the presence of the Holy Spirit, you have been given spiritual gifts. You have certain opportunities, skills, abilities, time, resources. So <clears throat> do you know and use your spiritual gifts? I've given you two of the four passages that are, are focused specifically on spiritual gifts in the New Testament. But to read through those and begin to ask yourself where you believe you fit and maybe talk to other people around you that you trust uh, spiritually about where you might fit. And then to ask yourself, what do I initiate? Does, does somebody have to ask you? Or as they you know, put in the want ads, you know, are you a self-starter in ministry? You find where you fit. And then who are those people? People in the family, community, friendships, others specific people that you feel like God's put in your life. Are you impacting them? Maybe list, list some key names. Ask yourself if you're intentional with these people. Again, not, it doesn't just have to happen, and, but are you intentional? Are, are you gracious with them? Gracious people have impact. Sacrificial, something has to be given up to invest in somebody else. And finally, with that margin or free time, what is it that you enjoy that also pleases God? In other words, you don't have a tension like, I don't think I should be enjoying this. What are you enjoying? And is it recharging you and growing your gratitude? That's a good sign. Because we need that margin of, of things. And then plan and do some of those things. Whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might. For in the grave where you're going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge or wisdom. This week, two real-life stories came across my mind. One is that a, a pastor that I know, a friend of mine in another state, has been diagnosed with brain cancer. Another is that my, uh, my brother let me know yesterday he was going with a friend whose friend is a pastor who died of a heart attack this week at age 42. And as I'm studying this and hearing of these experiences, I'd ask myself, have I accomplished what God wants me to accomplish? And how long do I have to accomplish it? We don't know. Nobody knows. It says in verse 12, moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. 
Just simply making it not, 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 not morbid, but urgent. That focusing our heart in the right direction to accomplish the things that God wants us to accomplish is our task. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to review and adjust and uh, look at our life as an assignment from you. Oh God, please uh, speak to our hearts where there are, there are distractions, where there are diversions that are uh, from the enemy. Anything that's keeping us from doing that which you want us to do and may we align our lives under you that we can with freedom enjoy. Enjoy everything you gave us to enjoy and accomplish everything you give us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Nate.